Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Anyway, my name is Chris. It's great to be with you all today. Great to continue in our series titled DNA. And uh, what we're doing throughout this series is taking a look at some of the stuff that is just a part of the way we um, are created and how we've been founded in the church family that we're a part of with Every Nation Church. We don't believe this is just a distinctive of Every Nation Churches. We believe this is what it looks like to be a biblical, Christ-centered church. Um, we just think that our family does a pretty good job at it. That's why we're a part of it. And so we're sharing that heart with y'all today. Um, Every Nation's mission statement is this, just to frame as we continue through this series. It says, as a global family of churches, we exist to honor God by establishing Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible churches and campus ministries in every nation. So that is what we are about. Week one, we talked about what it looks like to be Christ-centered and spirit-empowered. Not either or, but and, to maintain that tension of being both of those things and that one actually begets the other. And so that was our first week. Last week, we had a great message from Pastor David Fisher, who was here from Birmingham, Alabama. He preached about how we believe if you can change the campus, you can change the world. That the future leaders, missionaries, leaders in the marketplace, the movers and shakers of the next generation are found on the university campus. And that historically, as movements are created and people are discipled on those campuses, it changes the world. It changes the world for the better, that so much impact happens through those students in that generation. And that as a church, we believe we are called to invest in the college campuses. And so that was last week. And this week, we're going to talk about the socially responsible part of that mission statement. Socially responsible. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Acts to lead us through this topic. Um, but I wanna, we're going to be mainly in chapter 3. But I want to catch you up to speed. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts, with the first couple chapters to frame what we are going to talk about. So in chapter 1, Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he tells his disciples this. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're going to be witnesses everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere that your feet may step, you will be witnesses of my goodness, my grace, my love, and my good news. And after this, in verse 9 of chapter 1, he was taken up before their very own eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. We've all heard this story, right? They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other languages. And Peter preached the good news of Jesus, and about 3,000 were added to their number. The first megachurch, Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Insert name of YouTube preacher here. Had nothing on the Apostle Peter, okay? <clears throat> 
<laughs> then we see at the end of chapter 2 that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and prayer. They were filled with awe and signs and wonders that were performed. They sold property and possessions to give anyone that had need to make sure that their needs were met. They met together daily. They ate together in their homes. It says, with glad and sincere, not begrudging and bitter hearts. And they praised God and they enjoyed favor from everyone. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Saved from what? Saved from the world, from darkness, from captivity, from the ways of the flesh and the enemy. They were being saved daily from that as they practiced these disciplines of fellowship, if you will. And then the very next verse of the Bible, verse 1 of chapter 3, which Disclaimer, like when these guys wrote this, they didn't say, oh, you know what, I'm going to make this verse 16, okay? That's something that like got put in as a system to help navigate the Bible later. Nevertheless, I'm telling you, like the very next line after it says the num their number was being added to daily, those who were being saved, in Acts chapter 3, which will go verses 1 through 10, it says this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you are going to speak to us today. Father, I pray that you would inform my words through the power of your Holy Spirit and that it would come upon open hearts and open minds. Would you give us ears to hear and would you help us to take next steps in applying your heart, compassion, and grace into this world as we go through it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to say the most important thing in the sermon right now. If you promise you don't check out for the rest of it, okay? I'm going to say the most important thing right now. Social responsibility is the natural outworking of a Christ-centered and spirit-empowered life. If you are living what we talked about two weeks ago, this Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life, the natural outpouring of that is taking responsibility for what is happening in your society or social responsibility. Again, they are linked together. If you are pursuing Jesus and you are filled with his spirit, you have to be socially responsible. You cannot view the world the same you did before he renewed your life, before he gave you new life, before he transformed your heart. Because when the spirit of God is welling up inside you, there are certain kind of problems that you can't just walk by anymore. When the Spirit of God is welling up inside you, there's certain things that maybe you used to just turn your head and be able to go by that you can't just turn a blind eye to anymore, amen? It changes the way we view the world around us. 
This Christ-centered and spirit-empowered life changes things. It changes how we pray, what we see or what we look for, what we draw attention to. I'm taking all this from those 10 verses we just read. How we view what we have, the story that we tell, who gets the glory, and the outcome. It changes the outcome. All of these things are changed when we live a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life. It changes all of these things. So the journey that I believe Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 illustrates for us is this. We need to have a posture of prayer that informs what we see. It informs how we view what we have. It allows expectations to be exceeded. And then it informs the story we tell and who gets the glory. Amen. That's what we see as we progress through just these 10 verses. You guys, read your Bible. This is just 10 verses. There's a few more. This stuff is encouraging. Get into it. Sorry, I had a week off. I'm a little... (laughs) Quinn's upset about it. So that first one, when you are living a spirit-empowered, Christ-centered life, and what we see from these guys here is they enter into life with a posture of prayer. Right off the bat, verse 1 says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, 3 in the afternoon. Why does it say that? I don't know. That's not what the sermon's about, but we can talk about it over coffee if you want. But they were going to the temple for a time of prayer. They had a posture of prayer in their life. And we know from the previous two chapters, this was a posture that Christ led them to take. Go, pray, be still, wait, pray, have a posture of prayer. We cannot discount the fact that this pursuit of prayer, and not just by themselves, but a pursuit of corporate prayer, a posture of prayer, a rhythm and a discipline of prayer in their lives is what led them into this position. Prayer preceded this breakthrough. All too often, we wonder, like, God, what are you leading me to do? God, I just wish I could hear from you. God, will you yell louder? I don't know what to do with this decision. Have you prayed? (laughs) Well, no, can't he just tell me? He can, but he desires a relationship, and he wants you to come closer. He wants to hear how your day was. He wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. Read the word and pray. And if we have a posture of prayer, you're going to be much more apt to receive his leading, his encouragement, his words. Just talk to him. Talk to him. Ask him what he wants. Ask him where he's leading. Don't say, you know, if I saw a comet right now, I'd know that you want me to do this. (laughs) If that tree blew down, I'm pretty sure that would be you speaking, and I might actually take a step and do something. And I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek because I used to pray that way. God, I'm so anxious about making the wrong decision that I really need you to, like, move heaven and earth so that I can know what to do. It's like, no. No. Trust me, if it's something he doesn't want you to do, it'll be clear through prayer, through the word, and he will close doors. If they're not closed, you know what? I bet he'll give you grace for that. I don't believe in most cases that God is a God of just the perfect, the right, one only decision. He says, ah, here's a whole bunch of things I'll bless. Over here, I'm pretty clear that I won't bless that, but have at it. See what I'll do through it. But you got to talk to him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now again, I'll admit, verses are a human construct as we read this. 
But like, rejoice always gets its own verse. So the people who really got down into the translations of this Bible knew it was important enough that this, these two words, they need to stand alone. Rejoice always. And then the next two words that also get their own verse is what? Pray continually. And then there's a few more words in the next one. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean there's no room for eating, there's no room for a social life, no room for work, because every waking minute you should be on your knees in your closet praying. I don't believe that's what that means. This does not look like the life of a monastic community. It doesn't mean you are always just praying, but you should always have a posture of prayer. You should always be open to hearing from God, and even in the small things, asking him what he wants. Be in communication, be in communication with God continuously. Don't shut him out of certain segments or compartments of your life because you know that what he's going to say is not what you want to do. And then it says, but in all things you should be prayerful. Have a posture of talking to God, hearing from him. Rejoice always about what he has done and with anticipation for what he is going to do. We've got to pray. We've got to have a posture of prayer, of being continually available for God to use, to hear from him, to be communicating back to him. When we are living a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life, it changes how we pray. We can't just do things the same we used to do them. And then it changes what you see, how you see things. Verse 4 says, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. I can, just, I can play that out in many different ways, what that actually looks like. <clears throat> but Peter looked right at him, as did John. He said, look at us. Every gift this man would beg for, ask for every day, like each gift would sustain him just that much longer. Just that much. It was like, oh, another gift. Okay, I got another day. I got the gift of another day because of that generous person. And then maybe after a good couple of days, oh, I got another week in me now. Just We've all been in that place where you're living in a moment-to-moment -moment anxiety. Like, that's where this guy was. And these people come along and say, look at me. Look at me. They're doing the same thing they'd done a thousand times before. But today, this day that we're reading about here, it was different. It was different. It was time. Jesus had ascended. He said, wait, I'm going to fill you with my spirit. They fellowshiped as believers. They were being added to their number daily. And then they come, and everything's changing. Everything is changing. This time it was different because the Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life will make it impossible for you to walk past certain types of trouble without doing something about it. I guarantee you, you drive up and down the roads of Eugene, and it changes what neighborhood, depending on what big events are happening in town, that's a whole other thing. But you drive around long enough, you're going to see people that need help. And it's really easy to drive by and like, I don't make enough to do anything about that. I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have is the power of Jesus in me. Maybe you can't solve their problems, buy them a home, you know, feed them for a year. Maybe you can't take care of everything that you see as the glaring needs, but what can you do with what you have in you? We view things differently. We view things differently. The timing of all this is not our own. The timing is not our own. 
And you may not hear an audible voice like I kind of mocked earlier. You may not hear the Lord say, hey, you need to go talk to that person. Some people hear from God in that way. It may not be just a blatant thing, but when your heart is changed and you are postured to hear from him and be in communication with him, like those little nudges, those little like, gosh, that's not right that that person's having to live with that way. What can I offer them? What might you speak through me, Lord? I was filled up with you this morning. I was praying. I was seeking you. I was praying and interceding for people. And you are welling up in me. And now I cannot encounter these people without doing something about it. And when you go throughout the world, you're going to be compelled by Christ in you to do something about what's happening around you. This type of life that we're talking about will change how you see the world around you. It'll also change how you see what you have. How you see what you have. Verse 6, then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Walk. Imagine going around and just doing that. Having that kind of faith like, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. I don't have money to sustain you, but because of my communication and time with the Lord and what he's done for me, I'm overflowing. I'm compelled to give you what I do have. Now, Peter's no fool. He's not looking at this naively, right? He's, he's not a fool. Like he's, he's lived life. He was one of the older of these guys that was walking with Jesus. And when he looked at the needs that the man had and he looked at what he had to give, he realized there was a massive gap there. And I, I can understand feeling that as I exist in this world and all the, the social unrest and the injustice and all of the division and all of the poverty and all of the things you see here in the U.S. And then you go overseas and you're like, my goodness, <laughs> that doesn't even like compare. There is a massive gap and Peter sees it. And I know y'all see it when you're walking around town, right? Like, God, there's just such a gap here. It was bigger than a gap. It was this giant chasm between what Peter and John had and what that man needed. But I can't help but think that as they're like, man, what, what, what does God want to do in this moment? That since they're in a Christ-centered relationship and they're in his word and they're praying that maybe they heard those stories. That I, don't, I don't know if they had this back in the day, but just to contemporize the Bible. Um, maybe they learned something in vacation Torah school. It's cheesy, right? It's okay. It was from Pastor David Hermes. <clears throat> I always told him I was going to use that one. Maybe they learned something as children in whatever kind of environment they would be taught the Torah in. They would be taught about God in. Maybe they would have thought about when God told Abraham that he was going to do miracles in his life. Romans 4.19 says, And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. But God said that he was going to make him a father of many nations, that he was going to do a work in them. Maybe they remembered, well, if God can do that. What can he do through me here? Maybe they're wondering, like, what, what can they, God do with the little I have? And they remembered God asking Moses, what's in your hand? A staff. And God says, use the dang thing. Throw it down to the ground, and it turns to a snake. And they're like, whoa, that'll show the people you're speaking with my authority. How will you use what you do have? Or maybe they thought about a time when they had a crowd that was hungry. And practically, they couldn't do anything with some young boy's school lunch, right, with 5,000 people around. They're like, what are we supposed to do about that? 
But God showed up. He did something with that. He multiplied their efforts as they had faith and could not walk by what was happening around them without seeing things differently and viewing what they had in a different manner. Perhaps they considered these stories and remembered that a move of God isn't dependent on them being amazing, but on being available. A move of God is not dependent upon you being amazing, but you being available, having a posture of being in communication with God, caring about the things he cares about, and then saying, God, whatever you're going to do, like, I'm in. I don't know what it's going to look like, and it may make me look foolish in the flesh, but I'm in. Because look what you can do, look what you have done, look what you've done for me. How can I contain that within myself? Not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. What that man at the gate called beautiful needed was impossible for Peter and John to do, to fix, to solve, to bring him out of. So whatever they did would not only be inspired by the Holy Spirit, but accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Inspired by and accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Now don't be mistaken, some of the things that God calls you to do will be absolutely impossible for you to accomplish on your own. Absolutely impossible. And in those cases, if he's called you to do it, he'll do it. He's not going to say, hey, go do this. And like, you're on some episode of Punked or something. He's not trying to make you look foolish. If he's calling you to do something and you don't have the means, skills, abilities, or power to do it on your own, guess who gets to be the hero of that moment? Not you. Are you okay with that? We'll leave that for life group. (laughs) Now remember, this is out of an overflow of a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life. So it's not a matter of just muscling through. It's a matter of being connected to God, postured to hear from him, to communicate with him. And then you see things differently. You view what you have differently. Another thing that this actually, God really highlighted this this morning as I was just going through my message again. I was like, okay, guess we're adding that in. But the fact that this man had expectations when they said, look at me. And in verse 5, so the man gave him his attention expecting something. And oftentimes we view expectations as like this needy entitlement thing, right? Like, you're always expecting things of me. But no, like this man had sat there for day after day after day, and he would ask for things, and people would give him things. And this is what, like how he was provided for. So it wasn't like needy or entitled for him to look to them because they asked for his attention and say, oh, and he expected something of them. But what he expected was what was going to get him his next meal. But God did something different. Verse 7, it said they took him by his right hand, helped him up, and instantly, not like over time or he had to go to physical therapy, but instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Do you think that when the scripture says he turned to him and he, had, he was expecting something, that that's what he was expecting? I guarantee you he wasn't. He wasn't sitting there going, oh, man, today's the day that somebody's going to come just blow my expectations, and I'm going to be jumping into the temple courts, the very thing I've been sitting outside of for who knows how many days, just wanting to be a normal part of society, just being captive of my own body and the the brokenness of the world that he found himself in. I guarantee this blew his expectations out of the water. 
when we're in communion with God, when we're praying, when we're filled with his spirit, when we're centered on Christ, when our worldview is centered around him, we should be expectant. We should anticipate him to do something, to show up, to move in people's lives, to transform our own lives. But let us not be surprised when he blows our expectations out of the water. Coming up against the Red Sea, what's God going to do? You know, I'd probably be thinking, oh, the best thing he can do is just like hold the Egyptians back. He's like, no, I got you. And the sea splits open. Like, a God is a God of blowing our expectations out of the water time and time again. The problem is he doesn't do it the way we want him to do it. So we get so hung up that, God, can't you just do it this way so I can know that you and me are on the same page? Can't, can't you just do it this way so I can move forward and not deal with this anxiety anymore? God, here's a plan. I've worked it up. I've ran the numbers. This would be great if you could just make it happen. Just hit that easy button. That was easy. And make this all happen. I got it figured out for you, God. Come on. But he says, no, because I have a heavenly perspective. And I see all of the things that are happening around your thing. And I so love the world, not just so love you, that I'm going to intermingle all of these things. I'm going to make things work out here that are going to impact generations, that are going to impact people you've never met, that are going to impact cities you said you would never go to. That's how God blows away our expectations. God reached me. He called me into ministry in a place that was much more comfortable than Eugene. He called me to Oregon State to be a campus minister and to be in Corvallis. At that time, I said, God, I'll go anywhere for you except Eugene. I'll go anywhere for you. And then I felt, a, some of you in here have been there. And then I felt a call in my heart. God's like, hey, you're going to be a part of planting a church someday. I'm like, cool. Let me just be like something low level. Let me just like get stuff done and not have to be the guy up on the stage every week and doing all of these things. And he's like, have I not transformed and redeemed your heart? Do, have, do, do I not get to be in control of what I'm going to do through you? And I said, okay, whatever, anywhere but Eugene. <laughs> anywhere but Eugene. And he said, Chris, I'm not a God of rejection. I'm a God of redemption. Just because you see things that are dark and need redeemed in that city, how would you not think I would call you to be a part of that? Now, he did not do it the way I wanted him to. I had expectations and he blew them out of the water, but not the way that I thought he was going to. And now I get to consider so many of you family, and so many, maybe you're new here the last couple weeks. Like, we can have that kind of relationship. We can make an impact. But that is because God did something in a different city at a different time and worked on a group of people's hearts that is now impacting a different place. We could have never come up with that on our own, amen? He is a God of exceeding expectations in ways that you couldn't fathom. So next time the plan changes... And you don't understand why did I lose that job? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Like, yes, some of these things are sad. Some of these things are hard. And we can grieve these things and lament that things aren't working out how we would want. Or there is loss. Or there is hardship. But I guarantee you, God will do amazing things through that. If you're hearing from him, if you're pursuing him, God will work through those things. He will exceed your expectations. We won't know what it looks like but we'll recognize it when we see it. Amen? And then it changes. The final thing, the story you tell and who gets the glory. The story you tell and who gets the glory. Verses 9 and 10 says, when all the people, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit 
begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, we're not always going to see healing like this. This isn't just some equation that you are like, oh, well, I saw it once in the Bible, so I can just do that whenever. We believe God does still heal, and he does do these things, but it will look different at different times. We do believe he moves miraculously, but he moves in different ways some of the time. But he will not do miracles 100% of the time that you don't pray and partner with him in it. Should I pray for this person to be healed? Well, it's better than not. And I know that sounds really apathetic, but think about it. I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe he can heal and redeem and transform lives. And something gives you this impression that you should pray to the point where you'll even consider it. Yeah, you should probably pray. Because he can't use unprayed, pray, unprayed prayers. Sorry, I didn't read it. I had it written down. If you don't pray it, how's he going to partner with you in it? Now, I am in no way trying to put God in a box. What I'm trying to do is tell you, pray bold prayers, have courage. Because when you pray bold prayers and you believe God can do big things, I believe it honors him. Because you're not just putting him in some little box. Well, I've seen you do this, so that's probably your limits. Stop putting limitations on God and stop putting limitations on what he can do in you and through you. When we step out in faith, God's grace will come about. And the only question is in what measure and what manner will it appear? When we step out in faith, he's going to show up. We may not know how, but the question isn't if he's going to do something. It's in what measure and what manner is he going to do it? Now, the socially responsible part. It sounds through this message like I'm just doing a part two of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered. But remember at the beginning... I said, living a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life, you, it, ha- it changes the way we view the world. It changes how we interact. It changes our paradigm. But you cannot be a socially responsible Christian if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit and you are not living a Christ-centered life. Then you're being a cause-centered Christian, not a socially responsible Christian. Anybody living on this earth, no matter what kind of faith paradigm they have, can make a stance for a cause. But being socially responsible has to be partnered with being Christ-centered and being filled with the Spirit of God. They all work together. Some of the most socially responsible things we can do are things that we too readily overlook. Now, you're going you're gonna to think that I'm just watering this down, but this is actually profound, so don't miss it. One of the most socially responsible things you can do, rewinding to verse 1, is you can pray. One of the most responsible things you can do for the leaders of this country, for our society, for division, for injustice, for captivity, all of these things, poverty, one of the most socially responsible things you can do is pray. Because I can't change all that, but I know the guy who can. Pray. 
it releases something in the environment. Jess touched on how worship just releases things. It helps us connect to God. And like with both sides of, of our brain, there is something about prayer that is like a God magnet. It just draws him in. It brings him into the moment. And you are focusing on him and what he can do rather than how you can leverage your circumstances and resources to try to be the hero of the story. <clears throat> Another thing that we can do that is one of the most socially responsible things we can do is share the gospel. Share the gospel. What's the best news you've ever heard? What's the best news you've ever heard? That we got a new up-and-coming political candidate or that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived as God, incarnate, gave his life to pay the price for sin for all who would repent and believe, and now you can be redeemed into relationship, restored into relationship with the creator of the heavens and earth. I'll pick that one. Perhaps the most socially responsible thing you can do is to proclaim the gospel. Build relationships for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of your comfort and who you like to be around. For the sake of the gospel. At different times in my life, of course not right now, I've done church with people that annoyed me. Not now, none of you. I have been in church with people that annoyed me that I would not say, oh yeah, you and me, we're going to, yes, I'm doing this thing solely so I can hang out with you. No, it's for the sake of the gospel not for the sake of my preference. Build relationship for the sake of the gospel. Build bridges in places that maybe you wouldn't think a bridge could be built if you were to just look at it on paper and the circumstances and your heart and your giftings and your life experience and theirs. One of my best friends grew up in poverty, African-American neighborhood in downtown Houston. He had a little different experience than Pastor Chris who grew up in a 1,500-person logging town, okay, full of white people. We had a diametrically opposed, different life growing up. One of my best friends. We don't live in the same state. Things don't make sense on paper. But for the sake of the gospel, we are in relationship and we pray for one another and we continue in the mission that God has put before us. It doesn't make sense, but God did it. Other practical things that can be done. You can serve. You see a need? You can serve. Well, I work a full-time job. I got kids. I got all this stuff. No, absolutely. Yes, you do. But what if you just found a couple hours once a month where you could go serve in these areas that God has highlighted to you there is need? I'm not saying drop everything. Don't be just a cause-based person. Be socially responsible. And your family's part of this society. So don't neglect them for the sake of the cause. Other practical things that can be done. Be informed, invoked. Give. When things happen, natural disasters happen around the world. See opportunities and give or go and help. Engage in your community. Engage in conversations with people who see things differently than you, not just who will perpetuate your echo chamber. Open your home. Ah, that's, that's a tough one, Pastor Chris, because <laughs> I got crazy kids. And just trying to get the house clean or dinner made for my family is really hard, much less inviting someone else into that. In fact, no one wants to come into the chaos of my home. I think that's garbage. Some of the most impactful relationships that my family has developed have been around a messy house, messy dinner table, late to the table dinner, kids screaming and fighting. It's like, welcome to life. <laughs> welcome to life. 
So opening your home is really hard, but you know what's even probably harder? Opening your heart. Being emotionally and relationally available. Not just for two hours on a Sunday because it's what you're supposed to do or what you signed up for in your request to serve or volunteer. What does it look like to open up your heart? To allow your heart to be moved by the things that move God. She thought it was funny. <laughs> no, that's It's family. To allow your heart to be moved by the things that move God. That you don't turn a blind eye. That you see things differently. You view what you have differently. You approach God differently. What does it look like to open your heart to that? Let him change it. Let him change it. You don't have to be so rigid about this is just the way that I am. This is how I protect myself. And this is how I guard myself. The beautiful thing about redemption is it heals things. It doesn't just preserve fortification of like your heart and soul. Yeah, cool. You were hurt by that. I've been hurt by people too. Guess what? I guarantee pastors are hurt by more church people than church people are hurt by pastors. <laughs> like it is a vicious world. People hurt people. And as long as this church is full of people that need Jesus, we're going to hurt each other. There's going to be hurt. But that is not an excuse to fortify off, to isolate, and not trust God to heal those things so that you can see what's on the other side of the hurt. Because God's the hero of that story, because there ain't no way we are, right? And if you've ever walked through a hurt, through a tension or a conflict in the context of faith community, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The victory is on the other side of the hard conversations, not in running from them. Open up your heart. Open up your heart. Just a few final thoughts. <clears throat> Just a little guidance around this. Now, some of you came into today, and you're like, oh, he's going to preach about social responsibility. I'll finally get Pastor Chris's stances on all these hot issues, and we'll finally put him in a box, put him in a camp, and see how all this works. And like, social responsibility is not about either or. It's about being mature enough to be able to see the lived experience of people that have lived like you and haven't lived like you, and have God's heart for both and for the entire thing and, and trust that he can heal and he can work in imperfect conversations to change your heart. And maybe someone else's as well. But just some important things to recognize and remember. Do what the Spirit is leading. We need to be people who are moved by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> It's not actually possible to take on everything you see. There's going to be things God's going to put on your heart because he wants you to do something. There's going to be things he wants to put on your heart because he wants you to learn more about it, be informed about it. There's going to be things he's going to put on your heart so you can pray for it. There's going to be things he puts on your heart so you can give to it. And none of those things are bad. And maybe it'll be a combination. It'll shift through seasons. But even Jesus said, I only do what the Father's doing. Are we better than Jesus? <laughs> Think about that. Now, this isn't something that we use to be like a Jesus juke. Have you guys ever heard that phrase? It's like, uh, like, oh, ha, I got you. Like, because, oh, well, Jesus didn't, didn't tell me to do that yet. Sometimes we can be so comfortable with being ultra spirit led that we just never actually take action. 
So this isn't something to be manipulated and used as an excuse. And some of those things I said earlier, like, well, there, clearly there'd be a comment if I was supposed to do that. Or clearly this, like, super drastic thing would happen. No, if there's something stirring inside of you, if God continues to bring things up, if he's waking you up in the middle of the night with something on your mind, I bet he's at least calling you to pray about it. It's a good place to start. It's all too easy to hide behind not feeling led. Don't use it to hide behind. Allow it to be your compass. Don't hide behind it. <clears throat> Seasons are real. It's another thing. Seasons are real. And sometimes you have to be okay with the seasons and the rhythms of which God is moving and the community in which you are called to is moving. We don't have two intense weeks of launching campus ministry in the fall every month of the year. Not because we care about the campus any less the rest of the year, but because when students are moving into town and the school year's kicking off and we're relaunching something, there is a season for intensity and focus in any given area. But over Christmas break, that's not going to be our focus. <laughs> it just wouldn't make sense. There's seasons for things. And you can put that to all, like over the summer, seasons change because in Oregon we get three months of not rain and so everybody's out doing things, Right? So what does that season warrant? Hey, let's have a church camping trip. Let's do potlucks outside. Not in February in Oregon, but in the summer. There's seasons for things. Embrace the seasons, but don't get stuck in them. Seasons are meant to change. Don't let a season become just your new norm or way of life or something that you are cemented into. <clears throat> sometimes seasons make sense. Sometimes they don't. But Jesus is the one who sets the seasons. Another thing, what is initiated by the Spirit of God can only be maintained by the Spirit of God. If God calls you into something and you're like, okay, I'm going to respond in faith and I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to be part of seeing change here. Don't just allow him to lead you into initiation. Allow him to maintain you in that. How many Christians get burned out because God was leading me to that? And you go full bore. And somewhere along the way, you're determined to be the hero of this thing. And you forget to be talking and connected to God, the very one who sent you. And all of a sudden, you're trying to maintain and sustain something that God initiated. That's not how it works. What is initiated by the Spirit of God can only be maintained by the Spirit of God. Remain connected. Stay in the vine. John 15, read it. <clears throat> all too often we do what we feel is the inspiration of God to do a task or get involved in something and then we forget to stay connected to the Holy Spirit and we end up getting ticked off at God. It's like, no, have you talked to him lately? Have you prayed? Have you, like, have you remained connected to the one who initiated this work? Don't forget about it. Worship team, you can come back up. <clears throat> In all of this, we have to remember why we do what we do. You might not be accepted for the things you do. Like, people might not understand it. In fact, I guarantee some people won't understand it. If you are living a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and socially responsible life, there's just going to be people in this world that won't get it. Peacemakers are rarely understood. It's a life that is counterintuitive to our culture, to our time, and to the rhetoric in which we live in. Your motivation cannot be being accepted by the world, 
because people are more willing to receive the benefits of the work and not the message of the work. And if you're just trying to please the world and to get them to like you, then you become more concerned with what benefit you can give people rather than the message in which you're sharing with them. In all of this, we need to run it through a filter of are we sharing faithfully the message that we are given to steward? Or are we just trying to control the outcomes and benefits so that people will like us because of this genie in a bottle mentality? It's not how God works. We be faithful with the message and God and his spirit will be faithful with the outcomes. You're not responsible for how people respond to you sharing the gospel with them, but you are responsible to share it. You're responsible to share it. If they tell you whatever number of things that I've been told in those moments, like, okay, God bless you, and you continue to pray for them. You're not responsible for the outcome. But we are absolutely responsible to steward the message of hope and grace and salvation that God has given us. So where we miss the point is not if the outcome looks like we hoped it would, but if our obedience is sharing the message that we know we're supposed to share. Now, I don't think that Peter and John set out on this day, because it doesn't say it, and I think if they did, it would tell us. I don't think they set out saying, this is the day something's going to happen. God's going to move in a power. Let's just head to that beautiful gate, and let's just see what God's going to do. Like, I'm sure they just set out a normal day, but they were postured to receive and hear from God and whatever he might do. At our men's weekend, Casey quoted this quote. He said, you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. I don't think Peter and John were like, oh man, there's a guy in need. I got to get ready. I think they were just ready. You read those first two chapters. They were in fellowship. People were being added to their number. They were filled with the spirit of God. They were going where they were led and they stayed ready. And when the opportunity presented itself, they shared and stewarded the message they had. And they were responsible to not see things the same in their society because of what God has done in them. And they did something about it. They did something about it. The lame beggar was healed out of the overflow of a Christ-centered and spirit-empowered life. He was healed out of an overflow. It wasn't something that they just conjured up in the moment out of anxiety because, oh, we have to do something. No, they're living out of an overflow. And one of my favorite parts of this That man was not referred to as a lame beggar anymore after that. That was no longer his identity. That's not what he was known as. He was now like in the temple courts, jumping around, like celebrating. People were amazed. His identity was changed and he was set free from captivity. And when we live a life out of the overflow of what God's doing in us, there are people in captivity that are trapped in their sin and the brokenness of this world all around us that are freed because of our faithfulness to steward the message that Christ has given us. So my final question for us is this. How are we collectively and how are you individually going to be a part of seeing identities changed and redeemed in this city and on this campus and seeing people be set free from the captivity of their sin and the brokenness of this world? Are you going to view the world differently and realize that when somebody's mean to you, 
It's not about you. It's about now the message that you get to share into that dark place, into that bitterness, into whatever their story is, and that God clearly has a heart for them. And we need to open our hearts to have a heart for what God cares about. So now instead of getting offended or upset or just turning away because that thing is scary or I don't understand it or I don't know what I can do, we are compelled to live in an overflow in that environment and see what God might do. See what he might do. How will you be a part of overflowing Jesus and the Holy Spirit everywhere that he would lead you? Not for your sake, but for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Father, I thank you for this word. God, I thank you that you call us to live out of an overflow of Christ in us, of your spirit empowering us, and that when we are filled with you, when we have our minds and our hearts centered on you, we can't view the world the same way. And out of that, you give us opportunities to be faithful to what you've done in us. And that impacts the world. So we thank you. We pray that you would help us as a community to be marked by these things, to overflow these things. And God, we pray for just testimonies and exceeded expectations in these areas in the weeks to come. So we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.